Ultra. In the world of Hollywood, movies get greenlit and redlit. They get remade and rebooted. But we are the ideal. I'm Sam Gash, and you are listening to Ideal Remake. Thank you for listening to Ideal Remake. We take movies that either have been, will be, or should be remade and talk about what the ideal version of that remake would be. This time, we're discussing fish stories and lost podcast episodes. After all, the podcast that got away is always the best one. And reminiscing with me is Presley Peters. So, Presley, is 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea a movie that has been, will be, or should be remade? Well, it has been, uh, but I think it also should be remade. I tend to agree. I think the only reason it has been is, like, I looked it up and I'm like, there's more than one thing with this name. But we all kind of only know the... The Disney Kirk yeah, Douglas one, yeah. Kirk Douglas. I completely blanked on his name real quick. I'm like, it's not Michael Douglas. No. It's the other, other Douglas. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, this movie was a recommendation from you. So, uh, before I even do that, Presley, welcome to the show. Hi, 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 I'm Presley, uh, uh, Presley Peters. Tell us all a little bit about you. So, I met Sam. I've been living out here in Los Angeles for almost a year at this point, but uh, I met Sam and I've picked up really well. We right. met at the house of previous uh, podcast guest, Caitlin Rogers. Yes, yes. I work in costumes. I'm figuring out my way in... In this industry, in this this beautiful, beautiful industry, I also write, so yeah, good one, two, one, two there. Writing is fun for all, unless you're on strike, which time of recording, we still are. Time of airing, we probably still will be also, but I'm excited to find out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me, yeah, me too. I mean, this episode goes up June 27th, so it'll be a mystery. What was the last, the last WGA strike last, what, nine weeks? Uh, a hundred days. Hundred days. Something like that. Okay. Well, and that was during the winter. This is during the summer <laughs> when they theoretically they're supposed to be starting to write all the new shows for the coming year. Mm-hmm. So. And we have a heat wave coming through too. So. I think we're also supposed to be getting June gloom. We'll find out. We don't know. It's going to be warmer than winter. Yeah. I uh, came to this recording from being on strike, but Presley. You suggested 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. What is your history with this movie? To be honest, I thought that I had seen this movie. I think maybe I had seen it one time when I was like a kid. Uh, And I didn't remember all that much enjoying it. But I had read the book when I was a teenager in high school. And I loved it. And I still love it to this day. And I still think that it's possibly one of my favorite books, if not my favorite book. So I had ideas of what 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was as a movie. Mm Mm-hmm. And we brought it up together and we started talking about it and we said that we were going to look into doing a, an, an ideal remake. Of yeah. It. I, so I also am like, I feel like I may have seen this when I was a super little kid, like watched it with my parents, that sort of thing. But I think I, it felt very much like I watched it for the first time. I enjoyed it. I, I thought it was a great movie. Like there's barely any sexism in it. So, you know, it's yeah. good. That well, I mean, when you have an all male cast, that you know, helps. That helps. Uh, can't say that it aged all that well in terms of uh, racial. Uh, That's true, yeah. and also the fact when they're dragging sea turtles away to clearly eat them later, and not just prop sea turtles. Not no, fit, they, they real, were real. We had a visceral. Sea- like I watched it with my friend Diana, we had a visceral reaction of like, no, no, yeah. And I had a memory of watching them butcher the sea turtle on camera but then i realized that wasn't this movie that's the movie tampopo 
which is a chaotic mess of a movie. And also not 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And also not 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. So how close is the movie 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea to the book? Um, When I watched this movie, I realized I needed to also reread the book just to make sure I had everything lined up. And That's not true, but I appreciate it. I, no, I did reread yeah. the book. No, I know. It, it wasn't necessary. Oh, but it was right. A, like, yeah, like, it was important for me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't necessary, but I felt the need for myself. <laughs> um, But I, 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 I reread it, and it's surprisingly... Pretty close. Now, of course, when you adapt a book to a movie, you're going to have to cut up or cut out a lot of parts. Sure. That's just par for the course. So there were a few things that were cut out. Namely, one of my favorite scenes, the Coral Cemetery, which I would be willing to argue is possibly the most important scene in the book. Okay. Was presented as the first scene where we were introduced to Captain Nemo, which was jarring. For me. So that was really where I started to realize, even though this was my first watch through on a certain degree, uh, that this movie should be remade because I feel like they missed out on a lot of what the heart of the book is in favor of chasing what the visual spectacle was at the time in 1956. True. And this movie absolutely is a visual spectacle. Absolutely. The... The Coral Cemetery, I think, as you're describing it, is when they first find Nemo's ship, the Nautilus, mm -hmm. they had, like, there, there had been a sea battle and a, a member of the Nautilus crew had been killed. And so they find the, sh the ship empty, mostly, mm. uh, and they see outside that the crew is under the water doing a burial at sea for one of the crew members. Crew members and like, there's a, a coral cross that mm -hmm. Nemo holds up and places as a grave marker. Mm -hmm. What is the scene as it exists in the book? So that scene doesn't come up until the halfway point in the book. Oh. Literally it is the one of the, it is the second to last chapter of the first half of the book. And it lays into the last or. The Coral Cemetery is actually the last chapter of the first half of the book because at that time they distributed books in parts. Sure. Um, so we got the first part and uh, it ended with Captain Nemo having resulted in some sort of in some sort of battle where somebody dies and they go out and bury him. And it's a very pivotal moment for the character of Captain Nemo and for the understanding of who Captain Nemo is to Professor Aranax and Conceal and Ned Land. So to have it be put at the front really, really takes away from one of the most interesting parts of who these characters are and leaves a lot of like speculation as to how they were going to develop this character over the course of the movie without something. So like uh, it, was a, it was a kingpin in sort of a turning point for this character. A linchpin. A linchpin. Thank you. No problem. Okay. So... I get it because so at the so in the movie this is how we're introduced to the character and it's like oh okay they're burying their dead they're it's a crew that cares about each other and like is doing this thing but as of this moment we have no other context for the character mm -hmm. at at that point in the story as it exists in the book what is this a revelation of who he is as a person or just that he cares about anything at all what's um, happening so in the first half of the book what we see of Captain Nemo is. He is mysterious. They don't know where he's from. Professor Aranax isn't able to put a sort of heritage or a homeland as to where Captain Nemo might be from. Based on the timing, I'm assuming it's because he can't do a full phrenology makeup or something like that? Something like, I don't know, but... Uh, 
But uh, what ends up happening is is we they go on a bunch of adventures. They go hunting uh, under the water with Captain Nemo. They get to see his ship. They get to understand how it works. And then at one point, Captain Nemo tells them to uh, he he basically feeds them, drugs them, and then has them put in a in a cell while something is happening outside the outside the Nautilus. And so Captain Nemo. All that Professor Aranax knows is there was banging, there was jostling of the ship before he blacks out from being drugged. Okay. And when he wakes up in his room the next day, Captain comes and finds him, or Captain Nemo comes and finds him and asks him, are you a doctor? And presents to Professor Aranax a man with a contusion on his head, and he's dying. And the professor says there's no saving this man. And for the first time in the book, Captain Nemo is no longer mysterious because we don't ever seen indication as to what his emotions are. We don't ever see an indication as to what his motivations are. Okay. He is merely a man at sea living by his own rules until we see him cry over a fallen seaman. And it's at that point when we see him take this body out and bury it in a coral cemetery that we see that maybe he hates something. Or maybe he feels for something. And when they come back to the ship after Professor Aranax says he'll be safe there. He's not going to be pestered or annoyed in his grave by sharks or crabs or anything. He's going to lay there in that secret coral cemetery forever. And that's where you bury all Because there's more than one person buried in this coral cemetery. And the captain says, yes, he's safe there from sharks. From, safe from sharks and of men. And so it leads into this question of what happened to the captain's ship that caused this person to die? What caused the captain to lie to Professor Aranax as to how he died? And then they buried this man, and now he's saying that he hates men and that he the, the dead men are protected from men. So to have that scene that's so pivotal and poetic in the book be put up front and almost untouched because it's immediately undercut by the, the squabble of capturing Professor Aranax, Consul, and Ned Land. And leaving them to die. And leaving them to die. That it, it takes the air out of such a weighted moment in the book. So. Interesting. What? I'm trying to now remember what happens in the middle of the movie. and I That's one of the things about this movie is that for a lot of it, and it, the same thing sort of happens with the book, is you get so wrapped up in seeing all these interesting things that they get to go and see at the sea, get to see at sea. Sure. Um, <laughs> that that it all starts to become kind of monotonous. And the character is the most interesting part of the movie, even though the visuals are so great. That's the way it should be. That's how you drag the story along. Yeah. So... In the book, there's a whole bunch of things that happen. They see plenty of fish. Same sort of thing. I feel like the halfway mark, halfway mark in the movie, might have been the island where they might where they meet the uh, the, the indigenous tribes. I feel like that's gotta be towards the end because it's at that point that like Conseil and Ned Land are like, we're gonna go check out the land, and it's like, okay. Yeah. I feel like the middle. I don't know. I'm generally trying to remember, and I, I don't. Because it might be that the middle of the movie is the squid attack. It might be. 
And that's another thing is the squid attack. No, it can't because the squid attack's not till after the island because they use the electricity on the core mm-hmm. of the ship. You might be right. It might be them going to the island. Who knows? Who it's knows? impossible to find out. I also think that uh, the island, I think it comes in the first half of the book instead of in the second half war at the middle port point. Mm-hmm. But that's honestly a bit of a semantics point in all of that. So, but... Yeah. It, so for me, the... Let's go through the movie as it exists right now. But basically, no, before I do that, do you remember how old you were or how it happened to be that you read this book for the first time? I was introduced to Jules Verne because of Journey to the Center of the Earth with Brendan Fraser and Joss Hutcherson. Um, Great. I I loved that movie when it came out. (laughs) I go back and watch it with fond feelings, even though it is quite corny. Sure. But at the end of the day, I watched that movie and I realized it was a book. And I started reading those books, and I realized that Jules Verne was a very interesting and very seasoned scientist, as well as a writer. And at the point in time when I was going from middle school into high school, or whenever I read those books, it was it, I was very considering, very much considering to go and be a scientist of some sort, oh, or fun. chasing writing at the same time. So it was it was in a very it was a very big crux for me, and I really enjoyed how he made such fantastic things also so scientific. So I could, like, look up with all these Latin phrases and everything. I'm a research bug. So. Great. That's amazing. Yeah. I love that. Um, oh, fun. Okay, cool. That was how cool. I got about to reading the book. Yeah. That's a great way to, to, like, work your way backwards into it. I love that. Cool. Okay. I guess I'll put a pen in Journey to the Center of the Earth for next time. I'll put a pen in. Put a pin in. A pin in it, yeah. Yeah, I'm put holding a pen, but I'm putting a pin in. Okay, so the movie as it exists, like, it's kind of always existed in the periphery of my knowledge, like, if I watched mm-hmm. it as a kid or, or not. Uh, I, like, I'm aware of the Ned Land costume kind of being, like, inspiration for the Popeye outfit. and Yeah. The... <laughs> I remember we had a conversation, I think how we landed on 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is because we were talking about characterizations in... Um, it was uh, the, Poseidon. Was it Poseidon? No, it was uh, the league. We were watching Poseidon Adventure, right. but we were talking about League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Right. And we were talking about how a lot of the characterizations in that movie are very good, and we both especially liked the characterization mm. of Captain Nemo. Yeah, yeah. Because it's great. It's very different from the, this movie. Yeah, so... Is it closer to the book or not? So the thing about the book is, like, like I mentioned earlier, Professor Aranax has a hard time saying where he thinks the captain is from. Mm-hmm. And there's a few things that lead to that. One, he can't put a specific, like, you know, stereoty- stereotyped, ca- categorized, like, Italian, Greek, uh, Turkish. He can't put that on on Captain Nemo for some reason. And then Captain Nemo also speaks a Ethnically language. ambiguous is the term we would Think. use now. Yeah, ethnically ambiguous. Captain Nemo also speaks a language that to his crew that nobody understands. And when Professor Aranax meets the captain for the first time, he tries speaking to him in a whole bunch of different languages, to which Captain Nemo responds to none at that point because he's being mysterious. Sure. He understands all of them. But Professor Aranax doesn't know where he's from. All he can say is that he thinks that he is possibly a Turk and that he is... Definitely of, like, a Mediterranean variety in his skin tone. Okay. So that he was... Th- he, Which is he, interesting because in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, he's worshipping uh, a Hindi god. Mm-hmm. Uh, the god of goddess of death, I think. 
I'm, I can't remember the name of the, of the particular god. Kali. The Kali. name of the god is Kali. A necklace of skull. Not even skulls. Necklace of heads and faces. And uh, she is the goddess of death. Hmm. Absolutely for sure. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's who Nemo worships in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And he's like, of all of them, like the most civilized and, and like proper and at the same time worships death. So it's a very interesting dichotomy in a character. And mm-hmm. he's such an interesting character. And also... On his crew, when we're walking up, there's some random guy that goes, oh yeah, call me Ishmael. Just like, Ishmael just happens to be one of his crew members. Mm-hmm. The Moby Dick guy happens to be on the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea ship, mm-hmm. which makes sense. Yeah. You could see how one of them would have picked up the other. That's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen fun, you know? For like, sure. So, And if you want to hear that a conversation about League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, you should uh, listen to that remake that I did with Chris Lord. Anyway, so... It's so neither version is particularly close to the way he's put in the book, but or both are mm-hmm. both are because Nemo is himself an enigma that we don't really ever know that much about, sort of by design. So the movie as it exists is we find out that there's this sea monster that's destroying ships. Professor Aranax wants to get to Cyan Saigon. He wants to get to Saigon, yeah. Saigon for reasons I don't remember. Mm-hmm. But he's also like, there can't possibly... I mean, but no, no, he's not saying there can't possibly be a monster. He's saying, well, based on what we know, it is possible there could be a monster. But he's also a scientist, and he's somebody that truly believes that there is a more logical right. solution. Um, but he gets contracted by the government, and they get sa- kind of sent out to see if they can go find the monster. And as they're about to give up, they come upon a ship that's been destroyed and is burning down and sinking... But in the distance, they see what is likely the monster, and they fire cannons at it. They hit it, but then that ship hits them. Professor Aranax and his protege. Yeah, protege is like a real loose word. It's protege slash manservant. Yeah, and I'll I'll touch more on this later. But yeah, Consul is his his attaché. Yeah, I mean his name's Consul. But in the book, he's described as never giving consultation as to what the professor needs. Oh, interesting. It's Great. hilarious. Oh. Um, okay. So, so the Peter Laurie character and then Ned Land, who is this, oh, yeah, I'm I'm the ultimate sailor. I sing songs and I slay monsters and I'm a lover of many women. And yeah. that it's and he so the three of them go overboard. And they all find themselves. They find their way to in against all odds. They end up finding this technological marvel of a ship and they get into the ship and they find oh my gosh they're able to walk into the ship and they manage to get in and it's completely abandoned but it's definitely what attacked everything right and then they see the coral graveyard the burial and then they get captured and basically nemo is there because he knows who professor aranax is and because professor aranax is this intellectual nemo is interested in having a conversation and showing the professor Kind of the world that Nemo himself has created slash inhabits. Yeah. Did I miss anything to begin with? No, I think that's I think that's all about right. I think the only thing you might have missed is that Captain Nemo doesn't immediately in the book he does, but in the movie he doesn't immediately just adopt Aranax and Consul and Nedland into his crew. He has them sent back out. And then he starts to lower the water, and he tries to see if Professor Aranax or Ned Land or Consul are going to leave each other for dead. Uh, and Or and beg for their lives, or which beg also for their they lives. don't do. Right. And so they kind of, like, hold on to the ship. I think I see Ned Land, like, maybe swim away. I, it is not a great portrayal of, like, what 
Captain Nemo was looking for or what any of their responses was, were to being like left for dead. Sure. I feel like that could have been done better. But, but yeah, that was about it. Yeah. Uh, so basically what ends up happening is they explore the bottom of the ocean where they go and harvest uh, fish from the sea. Fish from the sea, seaweed, sea turtles. All the things. Uh-huh. They can make any sort of food and any sort of thing. They can make cigars and everything from what the bounty of the sea provides. Mm-hmm. And Ned Land and Consul find a sunken ship and they go find a treasure chest in the ship. And they're like, oh my gosh, we're going to be rich. But then they get attacked by a shark and they have to kill the shark. And when they get dragged back on board, Nemo's like, you idiots, no one needs treasure. We use it for ballast. Mm-hmm. And so Ned Land's like, oh my God. And so like over the course of the movie, Ned Land's slowly stealing from the ballast of mm-hmm. the pearl necklaces and everything. But basically it's like our, our moral systems are different. I'm not a part of the world of man anymore. And so I'm done with their rules. Mm-hmm. And... So as they keep going, they're learning more about kind of the world and the nature of the ship and everything about it. Uh, And then they go and uh, Nemo shows Professor Aranax this prison colony. And this is like in the later third quarter of the movie. No, it's got to be earlier because the last time is uh, – because he has the line um, later in the movie where the last time I went on land, it was a pretext for murder. Yeah. Because this is the moment where Nemo sends them back to their quarters and locks them in so they can go attack the ship Mm -hmm. that is carrying some of those slaves, but is also carrying the dangerous materials or whatever they were mining for. Right, right. And Nemo basically reveals is that he used to be one of those prisoners. Most of the people on his ship were prisoners. He was a slave, yeah. He was a slave and they were mining for tools of war. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they managed to escape. They found their special island. And they manufactured this technology and people have been trying to get Nemo's technology for all this time and they're using it and they want to use it for war. This exact thing Nemo doesn't want to do. So Nemo basically goes and he destroys ships carrying these other materials that he, as a slave he himself helped mine for. Yeah. Or was didn't help mine for, was forced to mine for. Yeah. So they take down that other ship. They go to an, like they go to do repairs uh, near an island and Consul and Ned Land go to collect specimens on the island. Nemo tells them not to go too far because cannibals, because it's a movie from the mm-hmm. 50s. And they make a mad dash back. They're followed by a bunch of uh, cannibals, and they, uh, Nemo electrocutes the ship to like scare them off. And then they dive down and they face off a giant squid. Yeah. That the scene everyone remembers. Yeah. Now, there's a, the giant squid part is easily one of the coolest parts of this movie, I will sure. say. Sure, despite, despite the fact that it swims the wrong the wrong way. Sure, but beggars can't be choosers Absolutely. in terms of 1950s special effects, I suppose. It's true. Yeah, that's, that's about how the movie goes, and I feel like the squid scene precedes what ends up being the final sequence mm-hmm. where we see Captain Nemo going back to his original island to fix the... Nautilus yeah. to its former glory. The Ned Land and Consul had previously figured out and found where they were going and figured it out based on the map. Ned Land seems like an idiot, but is really good at reading maps and mm-hmm. is like a really good sailor. Like at the end right. of the day, he's very good at what he does. And they get a bunch of bottles and they drop bottles into the ocean and the Navy finds it. So when the Nemo gets back to Volcania, mm-hmm. the Navy is there waiting for him to, to take him down. Right. And it was really strange because it wasn't explicitly stated as to who the people were that were coming for 
Ned Land and Consul and Professor Aranax after the bottles were released. Sure. It was almost made to seem like, like, I don't know if it was the military or if it was supposed to be the slavers because it was, it was very strange. Mm. I couldn't quite figure out who I they assumed, were, which is... I always just kind of assumed it was the systems of power had finally yeah. come for this person with this ultimate technology yeah. to take it from him. I think the reason why I was like brought away from thinking that it was a military is because Captain Nemo asks if they're flying any flags and they say no, which was something that the slavers were doing on their oh, ships. Oh, that's a good point. So. But basically, in order to prevent anyone from getting his technology, Nemo sets the island to explode. And in getting away, Nemo himself is shot. And to prevent anyone from getting his submarine, he's like, we're going to Take this thing down. So mm-hmm. he his island's going to explode. The submarine, the Nautilus is going to go down. And Aranax, Consul, and Ned Land manage to escape just before the whole thing goes down. And all of Nemo's technology is lost. As well as Aranax's notes. But at least he's he's gone with his life. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of the movie. Yeah. What happens in... Did I miss anything? No, that, that all sounds about right. Yeah. What else is missing from the book... So does the book end the same way? No. Uh, So the book doesn't make any reference to slavers. It does make reference to the idea that um, somebody hurt Captain Nemo and a family that he had. That's right. Um, That does happen in the movie, too. It's mm -hmm. like the slavers killed his wife and son. And then made him a slave. And then made him a slave. In order to get to his technology. Yeah. But what ended up happening in the book uh, is we merely see Captain Nemo find a ship again captain nemo is a mysterious character in the book we don't really ever find out who his enemy truly is so at, in the book what ends up happening is he attacks a ship the ship attacks back he tries to wear the ship out consul aranax and Ned land escape during the fight because they don't want to be brought down with the Nautilus while this attack is happening. Now, there's not really any slavers in the books. Captain Nemo is never written out to be a former slave, nor were his crew. They are all men of mystery up until the moment they die. And even when... and But they do die in the book. They lose this battle with this other ship. It is also made a little fuzzy about whether or not Captain Nemo dies. Okay. Because... That does sound very Jules Verne. Yeah, Professor Aranax gets away and says in this... he's The story is written out as if it were some kind of journal, or if he was talking to you about a journal that he wrote. Okay. And so he talks about it in the end of being This like, is not the journal. This is just a tribute to the greatest journal in the world. Something like that, yeah. Tenacious D. Real, yeah. Real digs. I, it's... Just, it, it, it's we don't know if Captain Nemo dies in the book. He's not shot in any way. He's not hurt in that kind of way. The idea is that if the Nautilus went down, the Nautilus went down. But if it didn't, then it's still out there. And Captain Nemo is a man of the sea through and through. He might actually die at the end. I finished reading the book like last week, and the last few chapters aren't the strongest. Okay. Yeah, that that's about how it goes. There's no really. There's not no slavers. There's no vol- volcania where they go and repair the ship. <laughs> I mean, I figured that wasn't from Jules Verne because it had the most ridiculous name, mm. like oh, we need an island. 
Volcania. Yeah. Great. Print it. In the book, they have different parts of the ship built in different nations so that nobody knows what these things are for. They're just That's commissioned. very clever. It's very Batman of him. Yeah. It's very That's Batman. what Batman does. Yeah. And that's another thing is Captain Nemo is is very much a kind of Batmanish character, um, okay. except he's vengeful in a sort of homicidal way in the books. He's Ocean Batman. He's Ocean Batman. I'm trying to think of something in the ocean that rhymes with bat, and I don't think it's possible. I got nothing. Flat flat man. Nope, that's a bird. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because like manta rays are like ocean flap flaps. They're sea flap flaps, but like that doesn't work. I mean, manta man is the closest I can think of. And like, and that's a SpongeBob. Right? It very much is. Yeah. At the end of the day, once we start working on what this ideal remake is, my biggest idea is Captain Nemo is not as mysterious as he necessarily seems. If you look at this from a subtext sort of view, sure, go for it. Talk, talk to talk. Tell me about that now. One of the biggest questions that I had after reading this book. So I'll go ahead and say it. I am a queer man. Uh, I'm bisexual. I'll say that out here on the air. But uh, just just so you know, I, while I was reading this, I was feeling like I was reading a lot of queer subtext about a crew full of men on a ship. Well, it's and... also historical fact that that was the nature of a lot of like. Mm-hmm. I mean, our flag means death, notwithstanding. Like that was the nature of all of these things. Of like, the vast majority of sailors during this time were queer, right? You live on the sea for so long with exclusively male shipmates, mm-hmm. it's kind of difficult for that not to be commonplace. Yeah. One of the things that led to this subtext that I have in mind is that, first off, the subtext that I have in mind for this this book to movie to adaptation to this remake is that Professor Aranax and Consul are very much in a relationship. They're not a master and servant. They're not a professor and his attache because in the book, they're never described as as just professional acquaintances. Okay. In the movie, they, they are... They were also close enough in age. I was like, he's awfully old to be an apprentice. Conceal in the book is 30, and I think Professor Aranax is like maybe 55. Okay, fair enough. That That's a greater difference. In the movie, they're a lot they're closer. They're very much, yeah. Like, like this... I, this is a movie in color. This has to be towards the end of Peter Lorre's acting career. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have this idea, and while I was reading the book, there's a moment in the book where there are, they're caught in a situation. This doesn't appear in the movie. They go to Antarctica, and they explore the Antarctic Circle. And they're going to, south, to the South Pole, and they manage to get themselves stuck between an iceberg, and they have to figure out how to get out, and they're running out of oxygen because they can't surface to get air. And... They get so deprived of oxygen that Professor Aranex uh, almost, like, loses consciousness until Consul and Nedland give him, like, a tank of air that they were sparing in case somebody needed it for that exact situation. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, Consul takes his hand and tells him that he wouldn't leave him, he wouldn't do anything. It was a very sentimental moment that said something more than what I think two heterosexual scientist friends would say on an, a journey like this. Just friends? Maybe roommates even? Just maybe roommates even, yeah. They were roommates. Got it. And so it, lead, it led me into pondering the entire story about, you know, Captain Nemo being so upset about one of his crewmates dying. You know, what did that mean? Did it have more of a meaning? Did it Was there subtext in there? Was there queer subtext in there? Consul and uh, Professor Aranax, obviously... 
Ned Land and Consul being friends, but not... I don't think that they're in any sort of way attached like that. No. But I feel like Professor Aranax, once he's brought aboard and he's told that there are all these marvels and mysteries and there's this mysterious man telling him all these lovely things that he can show him that he's not aware of, it breeds a kind of, like, come-hither sort of situation in my my mind. Absolutely. From Captain Nemo. Sure. I feel like there's a lot of subtext, and I looked into it, and there's a lot of speculation as to whether or not Jules Verne may or may not have been secretly bisexual. It wasn't exactly illegal to be gay or bisexual in France uh, in 1791. It was basically legalized to say whatever happened in your bedroom behind closed doors was your own private matter, and you couldn't be persecuted by it. Good. So. Yeah. Okay. One of the things that I did was I gender-swapped a few characters just because I'm rarely okay with an all-male cast, sure. certainly in a movie that's made now. I gender-swapped both Consul and Aranax. Okay. But I... <laughs> their ages are very different. And I, like, because it was the Master and Apprentice thing of, like, I made that much more apparent. Mm-hmm. I had considered the possibility of a romantic entanglement between Nemo and Aranax... For me, I like, and I totally understand where you're coming from. Where I was coming from in my logic was it's the seduction of knowledge, if not physical attraction. It's just mm-hmm. like I will go anywhere with with someone who is able to show me such wonders, and it's 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 a seduction of the mind as opposed to the body. Kind exactly. Of thing. Yeah. And that is what I found interesting, especially because. So the next question I really need to have is. When do we want to set this? I kind of want to envision it as a period piece still. So we still can do it. So right. the so the movie itself was made in the 50s, but the book takes place in the 1790s, 1800s. Uh, it takes place in 1866, uh, 67, I think. So the book was written in 1791, but it took place 80 years no, in the future? Sorry. Let me go ahead and, and clarify. Um it was written and released in 1870, the okay. book was. The book takes place in 1867. Okay. Um, Why did you say France 1791? Because Jules Verne came after, so I was like saying, alluding to the fact that it was legal in 1791 for whatever was happening behind closed doors. To but be, then 80 years later. And then 80 years later, Got we it. have okay. Jules Verne in the book. So Got it. I was... Com- yeah. So the book, when it's written, was contemporary. Yes. Largely. Yeah. The movie, when it's filmed, is a period piece. Yes. So I brought this up a little bit when we were talking about Casablanca, in that Casablanca, we see it as this Casablanca, Casablanca. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see it as this like grand period piece, but at the time, it was contemporary. Like At, at the moment of its conception and creation, it was, here's the way things are now. Mm-hmm. That said, I think we can do a period piece, but we have options. We have the 1800s. We have the 1900s. We also could put this in the future. Yeah. If we were going to do it in the future, and I've thought about this as well, we could do something in space. We could do that as well. Yeah. I feel like you can't call it 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. 20,000 parsecs <laughs> in the galaxy. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's fun too. I do feel like it needs to be in the ocean, just because the ocean itself mm-hmm. is this big grand mystery. I don't know. So I was also torn. So part of the reason why I made my Professor Aranax uh, a lady is because here is this amazing mind that is kind of dismissed. And so I kind of had my Captain Farragut being like, 
look, ma'am, I get that you think you're smart, but I'm the captain here, and I can tell you we're not going to find anything. And mm. then they find the thing because they follow her directions. Right. And so now all of a sudden that she, like, she finds Captain Nemo, who all of a sudden is this person who's just like, no, I've read your books. I think you're brilliant. And mm. it's like, oh. And that immediately gives her pause of just like, this is a person who really has no preconceived sexism of the time. Yeah. Like, I made uh, the first maid of the Nautilus. I also uh, gender-swapped that character. Like, yeah. I swapped those three. Yeah. And that's not to say that we're necessarily going to do that or any of them. But, like, as a argument for making it a period piece, you certainly could do that. My pitch, in terms of timing, was because the movie depicts the... the tells the story as when the book was written. Mm-hmm. I would suggest that we do our remake in the 50s. Okay. And that way we could lean more into the uh, retro-futuristic style aesthetic. Sure. And we could kind of go that way. Yeah. Of, like, pitching of, in the 50s, this this did exist, and it is a potential future we could have had if the person who was able to come up with this technology hadn't been persecuted and, and driven out of the world. Right. That would be my pitch in terms of timing. Right. But... You said you had a very particular pitch for this story, and I would love to hear it. So my particular pitch, period piece, I honestly think that if we did it in the 1950s, it would still very much apply in the way I'm sort of thinking about it. Sure. I almost want to see this be a queer love story or... Great. Because with console being there and being what I think he might be for Professor Aranax, and what Professor Aranax might think he is to Captain Nemo or vice versa... And having Ned Land along as the token hetero for, for a change, you know, you know, <laughs> I cast turn something that? on its head. I just thought that it'd be it'd be eye opening as well for so many people that you know, there's so many there's some people who didn't watch our flag means death. Yeah, that that was a historical thing that there was so, oh, so there's so much evidence to support that all that happened and that being gay or queer is not a new like thing. it's a historical comedy, but yeah. it is a historical comedy. Yeah. Yeah, and so I want to see Consul as a character see Professor Aranax taken away from his line of sight by Captain Nemo and not necessarily feeling like he has to compete with Captain Nemo, but being definitely broken by the fact that, like, he's shown so much time and devotion to Professor Aranax and Professor Aranax being swept away by this mysterious man that Consul doesn't trust because he knows better than to just trust a stranger that kidnaps you out of the sea. Okay. And then having Captain Nemo be somebody that is just as mysterious and seeing Professor, uh, seeing Captain Nemo through Professor Aranax's eyes and seeing all these characters interacting through Ned Land's heterosexual eyes. And while there's all going to be all the spectacle in my version of what I would have had, there would have been much more emphasis on what's really happening with these characters. Why are they staying on this ship why do they not want to leave? Because in the book, Ned Land is the one that really wants to push all of them to leave. He's right. the one that doesn't care about anything that's happening on the ship or out in Ned the ocean. Wants, Ned wants to make it to... His name is Ned Land. Yeah, he wants to make it's it to It's not land. subtle. It's not. He truly, truly is a man of the sea, but he truly, truly wants to set foot on dirt once in a, once in a while, so... He- he wants to he wants to travel the world and sleep with a woman on every different continent. Yeah. So that was really my idea and I had sort of this kind of like idea in mind of like what if Greta Gerwig directed it or uh Luca Guada the, the guy who directed um 
uh, Suspiria and Call Me By Your Name. Sure, sure, um, sure. Guadagnino. And I I wanted to see almost a version of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea that was visually beautiful, but took a moment to talk about how relationships are as complicated as they can be, especially when it's with something as untrodden as, and so secretive, especially in these periods, yeah. as being queer, gay, might be. Okay. So, so that's that's the character piece, the relationships. And so that, that so when you were thinking in terms of your remake, that's the realm you were living in. You were living in terms of like character relationships as opposed to like plot or story sort of thing? That's really, that's, that's where I like take Great. a lot of emphasis in my writing. Good. Then I will do the plot and story stuff. Okay. For me, my twist on the original is that in the original we had Volcania. Yeah. And I think Volcania is really cool, but I think it deprives us, deprives us of the opportunity to really live under the sea. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that they have to come to land and live on an island, even, if anything, takes a little bit away from the allure and the mystery of it all. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the reason they can never find Nemo's hideout is because he constructed an undersea town, city, whatever. So, yeah. And part of me want like what I really kind of wanted is for it to like everything to be powered by like volcanic vents and like the these ocean mm. heats and so because they're able to tap into this volcanic power they are able to generate and like what Nemo's grand technology is isn't anything other than being able to store the natural energy being emanated by the earth and because he's able to do that they can take it away and they have this nautilus that runs on volcanic power that they stored from the town, they have to occasionally go back to, like, recharge their batteries or switch it out for a new battery. Yeah. And so that's, like, there's that's their step forward in technology. Sure. But, so we have three kind of, like, things that happen, and I kind of wanted to tie them all together in terms of plot. When we're in the beginning of the movie, and Aranax and Consul and Ned Land and that whole ship, they're off and exploring. They're basically just, like, wandering around the Pacific Ocean, hoping they find the monster. Mm-hmm. That's dumb because they have a professor on board and if they're and if Aranax is going to be impressing Nemo with uh, his intellect, mm-hmm. then there has to be something other than just like, oh, you were on board? That's great. And I think Aranax has to sit down and as Captain Farragut is shutting everything down, Aranax's last ditch effort is to take a look at every single ship that's been attacked and find the piece that was missing mm-hmm. like figure out exactly what it was that made nemo attack these ships right and i think it needs to be that these ships accepted a delivery from this slave colony this sure. encampment whatever and so nemo was targeting these ships to take to destroy this supply right and i think that's what it needs to be and so they either accept a shipment from this company or they go try to uh, cut off, intercept a ship that yeah. has that thing, and that's where they, and so they actively find the Nautilus instead of passively find the Nautilus. Yeah. And then that also gives us reason for Nemo to reveal to Aranax of like, oh, you figured out that I was targeting these ships. Let me tell you why I was targeting these ships. Be- it's because this material is coming from this horrific atrocity that humanity mm-hmm. has put forth. Mm-hmm. 
And so one leads to the other, and then all of a sudden Nemo's like, my goal in life is to make sure this sort of thing never ever happens again. And because I can see this thing from the Earth being used and turned into a weapon, I know that that's how they would take my technology and they would turn it into a weapon. Mm -hmm. To the point where at the end of the movie, when Nemo's cornered and every like kind of being attacked from all sides, we can even see a twist of a version of a Nautilus in like a German U-boat or something Mm -hmm. of this twisted weaponized version of Nemo's technology coming to destroy Nemo. Right. So we get the, the three beats of this is what he's targeting. Here's why Nemo was right. Yeah. And because we see Nemo being right, we see Nemo being like, they've already gotten that piece of my technology. I can never let them get the rest of it. Who knows what else can happen? And that's why the city under the sea and the Nautilus itself need to be destroyed Mm. to prevent any other further technology. And then you get the line at the end where Nemo says, someday the world of man might be ready for the technology that I have, but it's going to take a long time and they're going to have to like give up being war machines in order for it to come to pass. Yeah. And in terms of like plot stuff, that's what I would put on while the character things are happening underneath of like it's beat by beat following basically make it all connected instead of it kind of just being right. a series of mini adventures. Right, right, right. Exactly. And I honestly think that that's a lot better. I think that because the book also takes this kind of on a mini adventure sort of way. And sure. It, and that was the style at the time, especially yeah. because it was a serialized series of it yeah. was coming out in pieces. Yeah. Each piece needed to be a serialized, like a mm-hmm. little, an own little mini adventure to keep people coming back and continuing to read the series. Absolutely. But I like where you, where you're taking this. I think that that's really great. And I think that it still lends a lot of possibility for Captain Nemo to be mysterious. Oh, for sure. So. Well, especially because like, we don't even have to know until the very end when we get to the hidden village under the sea, what the technology is that he's protecting. Mm -hmm. Because kind of we assume it's nuclear in the movie, but we don't really know. I think, Considering that it was made in 1956, and at that point yeah. in time, we had, I think it was becoming right. the idea. In the book, it's not nuclear. Because that didn't exist. Because it didn't exist. But I, I, I think that it being nuclear is great, but I also think that it being volcanic uh, uh, power generated and utilized in a way is also something really it's great. It's like the cleanest energy. Yeah. And there's no runoff. There's no toxic. Yeah. And that's exactly it. They can't trace it because there's nothing being left behind. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no, uh, there's no exhaust. Mm-hmm. And so we can't trace it. We can't figure it out. We can't find remains and try to like reverse engineer it. Exactly. It's just perfect and clean. And that's why he's the man of mystery. He's the he's man the... of mystery. And they will, and the powers that be will stop at nothing to try to get him mm-hmm. to force him to create the technology for him, yeah. for them. Yeah. I I love it, honestly. It was a first, second, third act, yeah. Cool. So that's the first, second, like, plot. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the character stuff of this romance of the mind mm-hmm. while also being being pulled away, nature of the sea. Yeah. I, I think that works as well. Yeah, and so I think that this... I'm the, I'm the hard outer armor and you're the soft interior. I'm the soft gooey guy, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think that there are ways to sort of show and emphasize with the characters how we move through all that. So I think that if we were going to do something like this, we would have Consul and Professor Aaron X together. Uh, they meet Ned Land, of course, and they bring all three of them along. Like you're saying, they, they by means of their own, discover and, and actively pursue and find Captain Nemo's ship and everything. 
once they're aboard, we start to see something where they are having to sort of come to terms with what all their relationships are all of a sudden. Because Ned Land wasn't going to disturb what Consul and Professor Aranex had going on. Right. Ned Land is very much about himself. Absolutely. And to Consul and Aranex, we're both people of the mind, not into muscly people or whatever. And that's true. Like, Ned Land is very much a, a, a figure of the physical. Yeah, figure of the physical. Um, brutish, even if you might. Indeed. Yeah. So seeing Captain Nemo and immediately having this moment where Professor Aranax is taken away and is mesmerized by it, we start to see Consul maybe not verbally say it at first, but he doesn't like Captain Nemo. Right. Ned Land doesn't either, but for more obvious reasons. Sure. But Consul is somebody that gets to know Ned Land and sides with Ned Land more and more because he realizes that he likes Cap- uh, Captain Nemo less and less. It's a, an alliance of a common purpose. Yeah. And so as the characters go on, we see... Let's go ahead and hop into what the first scene between Captain Nemo, Aranax, and Consul might be then. Sure, tell me. In the book, in the movie, they do. maybe they do fall right upon board the ship, the Nautilus... After they they get rammed off of the ship, um, and they manage to find a way on board. Now in the book, they like bang and make noises. Captain Nemo comes up and takes them down so that they don't just like die at sea because there's no reason to kill them. In the movie, he tests their their will to live or whatever it might be. But I think having Captain Nemo bring them on and being surprised as to how they found them and Captain or Professor Aranax knowing who Captain Nemo not necessarily is, but what he may or may not be doing attacking these ships. Sure. Immediately puts Captain Nemo on guard. Right. And so we start to see Captain Nemo, who is trying to change this perception from Professor Aranax, is trying to seduce him so that he doesn't try and give out these these secrets. And so... Here's my question. What does Nemo get out of it? Captain Nemo. What does Nemo get out of this that Nemo didn't currently already have? Other than just not being willing to kill someone of an intellect mm-hmm. as high as Aranax. I think Captain Nemo likes Aranax. In the books, in the movie, he's read works from Aranax and knows that he's an intelligent person. So I think maybe what happens is when he realizes that Aranax was, one, able to track him down, and two, possibly understand some of the things that are happening on board that nobody else would be able to understand. Even the people that work there had to be shown how it worked. He's able to deduce exactly what it is just off of some minor details that Nemo gives. Sure. Makes Captain Nemo realize, I'm going to keep this person around because they understand me and they might help me make my technology better. And if I keep them around, then they're mine. Got it. So it's a calculated risk of I'm... I'm introducing i'm i'm bringing someone down to the bat cave mm-hmm. but i'm piecing it out so that they don't get the full spec uh the full spectrum of it first but eventually maybe they can help me make a, a better belt and a better batmobile a better cape whatever it's, yeah all of a sudden i have an outside opinion that i respect and so i can potentially work to start smoothing out what might, might potentially be flaws that i wouldn't otherwise mm-hmm. see mm-hmm. which means that i think that that is something second half of the movie we are going to have to start seeing like before things start really like going 
or like before things start falling, crumbling and falling apart, we need to start seeing Aranax contributing in some mm-hmm. way of literally we can have Aranax doing a rough design of a potential thing that would like streamline design yeah. or this, that, or yeah, the other Aqua thing. dynamics or, sure. or even like a stronger hull design or yeah. like a, an alloy or something. We can even make it as simple as this of we can, the first meal that we're having, we can have like, Oh, here's all this different food, blah, blah, blah. blah mm-hmm. And it's all o- oceanic based. And Aaron actually would say something like, I mean, what I'd really love after all of this is a, a, a biscuit. Like something like a really nice biscuit to kind of tie off the evening and like kind of make it go like so, so, be, be done with this meal. And Nemo's like, I mean, that doesn't there are limits to what the ocean is able to provide. And one of the things that you'll learn is that the things that tie us to land like biscuits are things that we can do without. Mm-hmm. And in the second half of this movie, Aranax can take oceanic supplies and make a biscuit mm-hmm. with the things that the ocean has provided. And I think you can even have the line of Aranax can say the line to Nemo of you said once that there were limits to what the ocean can provide. I'm here to tell you that no, there is not. Mm-hmm. And it's like, Oh, okay, great. So now Aranax is starting to see. Yeah. And you can even then use that to imply at the end of the movie, once everything goes down, that Aranax has kind of been converted to the point where now that Nemo has been killed, Aranax might even become the new Nemo. Right. And, then yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that that's pretty pretty honestly great idea. And not only does it not only would it lend the idea that maybe Professor Aranax could be the next Nemo, it becomes like you said, they destroy it because they realize that nobody else should have this technology that should Professor Aranax be the next Nemo. Yeah. And the answer is no. Right. So he takes that step away after Captain Nemo goes down with the Nautilus and the the city or or whatever it might be the town the the station goes down. Professor Aranax has all these ideas that he drew up that he helped that he was going to help build, and he realizes that if I do those things, then I'll be Captain Nemo, and there'll be somebody else that'll find it and hmm. create it. Because and... at the end of the day, the, the moral of the story, the the message of the movie needs to be that Nemo is right. Mm-hmm brutality notwithstanding Nemo needs to be right. right methodology may be in question but yeah there was a moment in the movie where uh, Consul where Aranax orders Consul to go do something and, and Consul goes yes captain and then Aranax keeps talking and goes wait what did you just call me and Consul's like I called you captain if that's the way you're going to be acting mm-hmm. and I to your point I thought that was a good moment and just it's a moment that we should also have in ours, especially yeah. if their relationship is being strained. It's like, well, if you're acting like Captain Nemo, I'm going to refer to you as Captain Nemo. Yeah, yeah. And then it even bleeds more into that idea that you you were just sharing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. And I think along with all of this, we have to figure out how Ned Land ties into the story. I feel like Ned Land is the reminder of the world as it exists. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Ned Land needs to be entirely dismissed of like... Part of what makes Aranax Aranax is that Aranax is like, no, if you kill us, please kill me too. Like, we came here together. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want you killing anybody. Right. And and Nemo's like, fine, whatever. 
And so Ned Land needs to be dismissed as this of like, oh, he's just from the land. He, he mm-hmm. has no value. At some, yeah, to some level, I think maybe even putting him in another uniform as the rest of the other sea, uh, of the other crewmates, mm-hmm. that Ned Land and Nemo do not see each other at all as equals. And he even right. sees him as a subordinate. Right. Well, both see each other as inferior. Yeah. For different reasons. But what I think we're going to need to see is that in like the big climactic battle where Ned Land saves Captain Nemo's life, which is something that happens in the movie. I think that that was a, a, I think the way it's treated in the movie is good Mm -hmm. because it's, well, why did I save your life? If I'd thought about it for even a second, I wouldn't, but I acted on impulse. And my impulse was, I, here's someone in trouble and I needed to save them. Mm -hmm. And then Ned Land's like, I don't know how to to handle that. I'm just going to go get drunk. But for Nemo, it's like, oh, his impulses weren't to be, his natural impulse isn't to do something. His natural impulse was, I see someone in trouble, I'm going to help them. Yeah. And that alone is confidence-shaking to Nemo because he just saw everybody as being mm-hmm. the same. Of Like, anybody yeah. would be a problem. So I feel like Ned Land is the cautionary tale. Ned Land is the cautionary and, tale. He's the, 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 the reminder that there is good yeah. even in the most brutish of people. Because Ned Land sim- simultaneously saved Nemo's life, but is also the reason Nemo died. Mm-hmm. Because Ned Land sent out the bottles and whatever, and like that's why th- th- that's why Nemo was found and then taken down. So I feel like there needs to be this dichotomy of like Ned Land being representative of, of like, oh, there is good in people, but also Nemo was right, and this mm-hmm. dude from the land is this reason of his downfall. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that kind of works and lends to our version of this movie very well. Is but, there anything else that we might be missing from story that we want before we step into casting? I think that um, with seeing Captain Nemo be mysterious, with going into the second half of the story, I because I truly love this the Coral Cemetery scene both in the book... And I suppose in the movie, but it wasn't properly <laughs> utilized in the movie. Sure. I think that we would have to include that scene because not only does it start to take away from the mysteriousness of the character, especially with how we've been seeing him in the first act of what we've been describing in our movie, it allows us to see that Captain Nemo isn't just a man of enterprise and... And, and violence. And violence and invention. He is a man of feeling as well and i agree i think that makes sense and i think that there will be a i think that that will also indicate the humanity of nemo to consul and ned land of like instead of just being immediately dismissive of this for for all they know pirate captain that's captured them now all of a sudden that they like have to take a second look Mm -hmm. and i think you're right that it has to happen in the middle of the movie Mm -hmm. after some thing someone is killed whomever yeah because it could literally be someone where... I, I don't even think it should be a named character. I think it should be someone who we never even really saw, but exactly. they happen to die. And then Nemo tells us their life story. Yeah. Somebody that helms maybe the ship when Nemo isn't captaining. Not even that important. I could literally be someone who scrubs the deck. Someone who did this. Did like some the absolutely most minor thing. But Nemo knew them personally, knew their life, because they were a member of Nemo's crew, and they were a part of Nemo's family. Absolutely. And when we get to the Coral Graveyard, we can literally then have a moment where this is the next grave being placed, and then Nemo takes one and said, that was this man's story. Mm -hmm. And let us not forget, and then he goes down the line at every single other grave, telling Mm -hmm. the story of every single other person who passed away. Yeah. With this being set in the 1950s, like you were saying, 
I think that that does lend the option, the option and the opportunity for them to have radio commu- communications in their suits. Cause oh, in the yeah. book and in the movie, they don't. And it's very straining to kind of figure out how they communicate with each other underwater. Yeah, but... So, but, but what I'm saying is, like, setting in the 1950s, having the communications devices and having that moment is is stronger. Especially because that can even be, like, a, like oh my gosh, this technology, how did you get it so small? How did you do mm-hmm. this thing of, mm-hmm. like, now's not the time for that. Mm-hmm. Now is the time Now is the time for silence and, re- and, and retrospection and, and, and paying tribute to this person that we've lost. Right. Uh, Tim. Yeah, Tim. Good old, <laughs> good old Tim. I uh, uh, always remember Tim. Yeah, everybody will. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Good. Let's talk casting. Let's talk casting. So, obviously, we have very different casting, and for the nature of the movie that we made, we're probably going to go with a lot of your people. Uh huh. When I'm able to be like, no, I will Absolutely. push something forward. Yeah. For example, probably the first mate of the Nautilus and Captain Farragut, but we'll get to that. And probably Ned Land, but we'll see. But obviously we have to start with Captain Nemo. Yeah. I'll go first for this one just because my casting for Captain Nemo, I literally was a little bit cheeky. And I'm like, well, since the character is the character we like from League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And I've previously cast Captain Nemo. Okay. I just went and got the person that I cast for Captain Nemo from League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And that just seemed like the thing to do. So my cast, and I also don't know how, we'll have the conversation where we're talking about age for everybody. Because sure, sure. My Captain Nemo, I think, is late 30s, early 40s. This is a actor who I know from iZombie, but he also was in The Haunting of Bly Manor. He had a role in Supergirl. This is an actor named Rahul Kohli. Okay. Okay. Fascinating. Yeah. I know this, I, I know this actor. I've definitely seen him in something. There was, like, a push to be like, hey, Rahul Kohli should be uh, Mr. Fantastic. And everyone was like, it should be frickin' him. And they're right, but it, it's not going to be. Yeah. But he's a phenomenal actor. Uh, That's really good. He has a British accent. Has the whole thing. I'm gonna write that down just because that's a good idea. Who did you have for Captain Nemo? I was kind of taking it in a different direction. I have a few different ideas, but I came about to this sort of idea based off of a photo I saw. And I don't think that we even necessarily need to cast the character as a Mediterranean, like we, like you're saying. Like, sure. It? I'd like to see maybe Tamira Morrison. From Book of Boba Fett? Yes. Uh, Who plays Boba Fett. Yeah. He's done other stuff. I know it's very interesting, but I, I can see that he's able to do more serious acting and more serious parts. He's done more serious parts. Sure. I think that it'd be really interesting to see him. When I envision his sort of character, I see Tamara Morrison with a beard, and I see him aboard the ship. He's always been, for me in my mind, somebody that ties together people. Okay. So seeing him and seeing him possibly be mysterious and having a crew that he brings around with him and being mysterious in that sort of fashion, I I, I just kind of like the idea of him. Okay. Well, we won't decide this yet until we kind of figure out sure, our dynamic. Sure. I don't think we're going to go with uh, my Aranax, but please tell me who your Aranax was. I went with Adrian Brody. Okay. T- I, tell me why. Sorry. Uh, so I was really looking for somebody, an actor, that would be able to play a whole range of emotions as well as coming across as very intellectual and, and inventive. Professor Aranax being played by Adrian Brody, who's just such a wonderful actor... I could see him crying 
after seeing a man that he never even knew being buried at sea in this beautiful display of coral, and then also being full of rage when he sees Captain Nemo attempting to attack seemingly an innocent ship or something like that. And then also seeing these soft, tender moments where he thought that he found an equal possibly in Captain Nemo and then realizing that their ideals on what humanity means to them are not the same. Okay. So I feel like Adrian Brody is somebody that is able to go blow for blow on every sort of emotional beat and still play the intellectual type. So I was really, really into the idea. And for a long time, he was the only actor that I could think of to play Professor Aranax. Well, then there you go. Well, my Professor Aranax was like, I wanted, again, I was, when I was thinking of it, I, I gender swapped the character and I was thinking of a, a seduction of the mind as opposed to the body. And so I was, I wanted someone, a, a woman who'd kind of been like, who could play hardened very well of mm. like, clearly very smart, but like the world had kind of like put all this weight down on her of like, you're a woman. We'll never take you completely seriously. And so I went with uh, Frances McDormand. Okay. But a Adrian Brody, for the movie that we have, is the correct choice. Cool. Which then gives us our console. My console was much younger. I was something leaning towards someone who was like, I wanted... Obviously, we can't go for like a Peter Laurie type. So I wanted someone sure. who could be fun, but also conniving. And so I went with uh, SNL alum and she was in don't think twice and barb and star go to vista del mar and that's vanessa bear okay she's very fun very like bubbly but like also like a, a good actress and so it was a different element and i was yeah. going for a very different kind of console yeah but absolutely. that's not what we're doing so who did you have for your console i had this is gonna be like kind of a wild pull but ben wishaw w-h-i-s-h-a-w Okay. I don't know this actor. I haven't seen The Lobster. So, he was in The Lobster. He was also in... Nor have I seen Perfume. But he was also Q in the Daniel Craig uh, oh. James Bond movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going with this sort of, like, possibly queer sort of storyline, he is somebody that I think has come out as queer. And so, having him play an intellectual who sees himself as being equal with... He's older than I thought he was. He's in his 30s. He's 42. Is he 42? Yeah. Well, he looks real good. Mm -hmm. But I thought that he'd be a wonderful person to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with somebody like Adrian Brody and be sensitive to Adrian Brody's Professor Aranax and would almost be, you know, juxtaposed to Captain Nemo, who would be possibly older or possibly, like, just a different, like, still piratey, you know? Sure. Instead of, like... Uh, like a like a school sort of intellectual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Ben Wishaw, being somebody that aspires to be with Adrian Brody's Professor Aranax, and then having to to go blow for blow with this not only handsome but intellectually beautiful Captain Nemo, I thought that he would have been a, a great choice. I agree. I think that is an excellent poll. With that in mind, I am going to push us towards uh, Rahul Kohli for Nemo. Absolutely. All good on that. And I kind of like it that of the three of them, Rahul Kohli is the youngest. Mm -hmm. By Rahul Kohli is 37, so he's five years younger than Ben Wishaw uh, and 13 years younger than Adrian Brody. Okay. And I really like the idea of, like, Consul having this moment of, like, you just like him because he's young and attractive and all of these things. Like, Consul can even be, e like, eavesdropping and spying on them, and they have this incredibly close, tender moment but it's over, like, a Petri dish. Mm -hmm. 
and it's like it's truly a seduction of the mind and everything mm-hmm. and like console absolutely should be worried and aranax is definitely being drawn away but it's not because of like the youth and the attractiveness of this guy it's because he is just that brilliant and mm-hmm. he is this enigma and how could he have all this knowledge and still be so young yeah and that's why it's even more of a tragedy like at the end when he's like dude you're 37 and you're literally sacrificing everything so people can't get mm-hmm. the information in your head mm-hmm. so that yeah. works for me that brings us to ned land i'd like you want me to go first or would you like to i go think first? it's your turn I thought long and hard, and I did a good few searching up, and I thought, you know, I'd really love to cast somebody Canadian to play this Canadian. That's In the fair. movie, he's like, I'm Canadian. In the book, he's like, I'm Canadian. And I thought Jared Kiso would be great. K-E-E-S-O. Jared Kiso is uh, from Shorzy and from uh, uh, Letterkenny, and he's usually a comedy actor, but... I feel like I've seen him in other things where he plays a more serious role, and I've when he does interviews, you can see who he is as a serious person. Sure. And I thought seeing him, he's fairly tall and fairly burly, and seeing him go almost be a brutish pirate with a sense of humor to him, but still a little bit of charm and also a bit of brutishness I keep coming back to... I thought that it'd just be a fun idea. I've definitely seen some of the things he's in. He hasn't made a particular impact on me one way or the other. Sure. But yeah, great pull. My uh, option for Ned Land is I wanted someone who has been a lackey in a lot of different things, but with a wry wit about him. Sure. And I felt like it would be weird if we went through this whole thing without casting anybody from our flag means death. Okay. So, this particular actor has been in Our Flag Means Death. He's been in Game of Thrones, and he was in Cruella. He's Jasper in Cruella. Uh, his name is Joel Fry. Okay. Okay. I, yeah. All and, right. like, he's less the common leading man style of attractive, which, obviously, Kurt Russell at the time absolutely was. He Kurt definitely, Douglas. Kurt Douglas, excuse me. He definitely has that moment in the beginning where he's singing his little song and he turns around and shakes his butt at camera. Mm-hmm. Like, we get what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, like, this is... Uh, Joel Fry is what I'll call ocean attractive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's <laughs> got that curly... You almost see, like, you could imagine him posted up on a dockside with, yeah. with a bag waiting, waiting to just board the ship. But he also, like, he's also very, very funny. Yes. But he's, like, a dry kind of sense of humor. Yeah. And I think that that'd be kind of fun for the Ned Land character where once again I'm trying to be a different sort of person mm-hmm. than like because we're never going to recapture the Kurt Douglas magic he's a different human being yeah and so I wanted to be like okay that sort of character but in a different more wa- modern way and so that's why I was leaning towards Joel Fry I think Joel Fry is actually probably the better decision cool so then I have the first mate and Captain Farragut did you also have those characters or we reached the end I didn't have those characters I realized like Going back that, yeah, those were some pretty, I guess, important characters, but... They were enough. They were enough. Do you have any other acting characters, or it was those four, and then we'll get to writer-director in a minute? I didn't. Those were my my big four, yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the first mate. This is another one of the characters that I gender-swapped, and I wanted a tough woman. So a tough woman who, like, you could see is like, oh, does she have a relationship with Captain Nemo? No, she's just tough and good at the job. Yeah. And so I wanted someone who we've seen be tough. And so I cast Sheila the She-Wolf from Glow. Uh, do you remember in Glow, the, the woman who plays the character who is a wolf? She's also in Perry Mason. She's in House of the Dragon. Her name is Gail Rankin. Well, you know, I haven't watched Glow. 
But that's certainly an interesting pick. That'd be a lot of fun, yeah, especially as like a first mate. Yeah. I think the the biggest thing for me when it comes to imagining all these characters is I have no idea what they're wearing. I'm just looking <laughs> at these fa- characters' faces. Great. Yeah. Perfect. So as a costumer, I feel like that's customer, important. Yeah, I, I have no idea how to dress these characters, and that's one of the most fun things about this whole se- this whole movie for me. That's fun, especially if we do end up doing retro futuristic style. Mm-hmm. Like that's rad. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then so for my Captain Farragut, who's the captain of the ship that gets destroyed by Nemo, and then the three people end up on Nemo's ship, mm-hmm. the one who dismisses uh, Aranax. And so I kind of wanted just like, especially because I wanted a, at, at the time when I thought it was going to be Francis McDormand, I was like. I want someone who's just, like, the most pompous British asshole. Just like, I, well, I'm I never think to take a suggestion from a woman. We shouldn't sure. even have you on this ship. And obviously sure. this person doesn't speak with that accent. But, like, that was kind of the thing I was going for. And so this is a guy who's been in All Creatures Great and Small. He's been in Peaky Blinders. He had a role in Rogue One. And uh, this actor is named Tony Pitts. And he's just generic white guy. Generic white guy, kind of square shaped. Tony Pitts. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. I don't want it to be distracting a... with like here's some other big name of like oh, I'm Matthew McConaughey and this ship's going down. Yeah, you don't need a Bradley Cooper playing a no. halfling in Dungeons and Dragons situation. Yeah. That said, I enjoyed that. But that yes, was great. but yes, but yeah, you're correct. Not the same. Yeah. But yeah, and also that was very distracting. It was great. Yeah. It was um, also very distracting. But yeah, so I was like, yeah, yeah, that sort of character. Anyway, so that those are our six actors. That brings us to our writer and to our director. Now, I think the first thing we need to, need to do before discussing any of that is we need to take for a second to talk about why it can't be James Cameron. Because I don't like him. Neither do I. And it, <laughs> and it shouldn't be James Cameron. And I feel like for a movie that, like, obviously it was the 1950s and things were practical by necessity, but something that was just, like, a marvel to look at. Mm-hmm. And you compare it to, like, all of James Cameron's, like, ocean movies now, where he's like, well, we made this in a computer. And it's like, but then you're not showing us the actual cool mm-hmm. things. We want to actually be wowed and, and and incredibly amazed by what's actually in the ocean. You know, when I was thinking about this, I didn't think about that angle. So give me one second to look up, because I have an idea, but I don't know the name of the director. Well, what I think we'll end up doing is I think we'll, we're likely to go with your writer, and there's a decent possibility we'll go with my director. Okay. Um, and the reason why is because I think for the director, we need the visual stylings and we need everything to look incredible and we need an incredible world to be designed. Right. But to get to the, the personality, the, the, the personality, mm-hmm. the deeply personal, the emotions, the, the character connections, I think we probably want the writer that whoever you were thinking of. Now, I don't know who you were thinking of, but that's assuming what I was, what you were leaning towards. Right. I was thinking of something like Greta Gerwig when I was thinking of this as a much more character-based sort of story. Sure. But then you brought in such great plot that we would have to weave both together. I mean, it's still 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which is, for lack of anything else, a blockbuster summer movie. Sure. That we then surprise everybody by having heartfelt, emotional character beats. Much like the new Barbie movie will probably be. Oh, I'm so excited. Me too. I'm going to be buying a ticket as soon as they go on sale. But I think of Greta Gerwig as being like a writer-director. Exactly. So are you pitching her as a writer-director? I might be, if if only I might toss out my director in this same sentence. Of course, please. Um, I think Gore Verbinski. Why Gore Verbinski? He did Pirates of the Caribbean. Curse of the Black Pearl and At World's End and Dead Man's Chest. And while you can say what you want about those movies, those movie No. Sorry, keep going. Okay. He also directed The Lone Ranger. Right, which is not so great. 
But, I'm sorry, continue. But in terms of, of his ability to bring characters together in in touching ways and then also having this... He, he already has practice with handling ocean, you know, going to sea and everything like that for filming. I feel like it'd be he'd be somebody well-mastered to go about making something like this possibly a reality. Fair. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. So that that's, that's your pair. Greta Gerwig stor- sort of story, if she wasn't directing, maybe a Gore Verbinski-style director. Sure. That makes sense. I had a writer who I know is good at doing character stuff, but also very much lives in the world of, like, fantasy. Mm. And, like, can write incredibly interesting and compelling worlds. And this is a writer named Javier Grigio Markswatch. Okay. He created the show The Middleman, but he's currently a writer on The Witcher. Uh, he worked, he was, I, I don't know if he was the showrunner or the number two on that Dark Crystal remake. Okay. That show. And so, like, that also, that's a Henson show. So it's a world of, like, practical characters and interesting things. And, like, that's the sort of thing he writes. Sure. And I just thought, and he's worked on all sorts of stuff like that. And so I thought he'd be a really good person for this. I think his first job was on Ugly Betty. So, like, he's worked on a variety of different shows. Okay. And my director, I went with Guillermo del Toro. He just gets it. Yeah. And it's, I so rarely go for, like, a big director for something like this. Like I often try to find like the TV person and so many other people come to my show and pitch Mm -hmm. Guillermo del Toro. But this is one of those rare instances where I'm like, I need this world to be perfect and Mm -hmm. I need it to be practical. Mm -hmm. And you take like, despite the fact that I know he knows CGI, like Troll Hunter is an incredible show. Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim. But, and Pacific Rim is also CGI, but it's also like this incredible world building. Mm -hmm. But like you take your Pacific Rims, but then you also take your Hellboys, which are largely practical Mm -hmm. mixed with, CGI. The CGI. Yeah, exactly. Or Pinocchio, where it's all this stop motion of, like, the man knows how to create a world. Mm-hmm. And he knows how to dazzle us. And I feel like for the director, that's what needs to happen. Yeah. But then I think Greta Gerwig for the script makes sense. Yeah. That would be wild. Be Greta wild. Gerwig writing a script a that's directed two. by Guillermo del Toro. It would be the ideal way to go about making this. It would. It would. Despite their schedules, somehow they were both available. We don't know how it happened, but that's the magic of ideal remake. Yeah, that's the magic. Yep, but yeah, that's that makes sense. So twenty thousand leagues under the sea, which for anyone keeping track or being snide, that title means that they have traveled twenty thousand leagues while under the sea. It's not fathoms. Fathoms is up and down. Yep, they they have traveled laterally for twenty thousand leagues whilst under the sea. Mm -hmm. Anyway, twenty thousand leagues under the sea. Captain Nemo would be played by Rahul Kohli. Professor Aranax will be Adrian Brody. Consul will be Ben Wishaw. Ned Land will be Joel Fry. The First Mate will be Gail Rankin. Captain Farragut will be Tony Pitts. This will be written by Greta Gerwig and directed by Guillermo del Toro. That's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Presley, you gonna go see this movie? I would absolutely go and see this movie. Hell yeah. That's a podcast. We did it. You have recorded your first podcast. Congratulations. Awesome. So, A, thank you so much for being my guest, but now B... Tell people about if you want them to follow you online or anything else. You, This is your moment. Tell people to do a thing. Well, this is the part where I go, go ahead and follow me on Instagram. Uh, Correct. My, I, If you look up Presley Peters, I'll be there. My handle is I am the dude, my dudes with underscores as spaces. So Presley Peters will be just a lot easier. Uh, it's P-R-E-S-L-E-Y-P-E-T-E-R-S. Good That's idea. That's my handle. Uh 
please feel free to reach out to me. I love this story. If Greta Gerwig doesn't listen to this podcast and write it, then, you know, honestly, it's such a good story. I may just try and do it myself. I support it. But... And it's a different enough story that if you change the title, you could probably get away with it. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh... Well, I'm pretty sure it's, like, public domain to write 20,000 oh, Leagues as a movie. That's also true. So... Yeah, fair enough. There you go. If you're interested in following me, I am on Twitter at Sam Gash, S-A-M-G-A-S-E-H. Time of recording, Twitter still exists, but if it doesn't by the time of this episode being released, great. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram at Ideal Remake. Or more importantly, you can go into the show notes and join the Dueling Genre Discord. You can talk to me and I will talk to Presley about what we did wrong or what we did right. And I want to know what your experience is with 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I think that that's fun. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show, if you wouldn't mind going on Apple Podcasts and leaving a five-star review, that's how new people and strangers can find the show, and that's always very welcome. But more important than anything else, if you could tell a friend about the show, that would be great. Mm-hmm. I would appreciate it. But now, I will end this podcast the same way I end all podcasts. Presley, what is your favorite quote from the movie or book, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea? You know, I kind of said it earlier. My favorite scene in the book is the moment where they come back from the Coral Cemetery and he says, yes, safe from the uh, sharks and from the men. So... So we've presented you a podcast episode that is itself safe, safe from the sharks and from the men. (laughs) Thank you for listening. Thank you.